0: This is an RNZ podcast. In a year like no other, what is top of mind for Kiwi parents? The health insurer NIB New Zealand has conducted a nationwide survey of 1,200 parents, asking them about their family's experience of lockdown and what they were most concerned about. Last year was the first time the survey had been carried out, and one of the key concerns of parents was the feeling that they don't spend enough time with their children. Well, what a difference a year makes. Founder of Brain Researcher and founder of X Factor Education, Nathan Wallace, has worked with NIB on the survey. He's in our Christchurch studio and joins us now. Good morning. Kia ora, kia ora. How are you? Very well, thank you. Well, it's been an incredible stressful year on so many fronts for so many people, yes. So what's the general picture that's painted by the survey? Presumably there's been quite a lot of change on how much time parents spend with their children.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. We're all locked in the house with them, aren't we? So um, it's interesting to note that parents are continuing to spend more time with their children. That's one of the things that come out of the NIP Parenting Survey, is obviously they spent more time in lockdown, but actually most parents reported continuing to spend more time with their children after lockdown. So that's, I think, is a really good outcome.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: It's actually quite good for families to spend time together. Everybody feels better, you know. Um, parents ultimately do want to spend more time with their kids, and if they feel like they're doing a good job parenting, there's a level of contentment in that, and we are busy. We don't really have enough time. So the bright side or the silver lining to this was having time to spend with the kids, and I think people appreciated just how valuable that is and how, that is, how that's good for the whole whānau.
0: So they so somehow readjusted. You know, they've mm. looked at their week or their day and, and readjusted where they allocated their time.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people have reassessed during COVID, haven't they? I know I sort of reflected on, oh, I don't want to be as busy as I was before COVID. Slowing down that much sort of made me realise, actually, there's lots about this that is much healthier. So I think a lot of people are reassessing how they move after COVID.
0: Some positive outcomes. But what about mm. health worries? What was the number one thing that parents were worried about health-wise with their children?
1: Um, well, there were certainly big concerns about technology and screen time. Um, you know, financial pressure comes through a whole lot, but that was more about their own concerns. So, for for their kids. I mean, you've got different concerns for different ages. The extended period of um, tantruming, we can see that teens and toddlers, especially in the NIB Parenting Survey, you can see that they're still having prolonged periods of you know misbehaviour, basically tantrums afterwards. But the screen thing comes through, really big social media and screen time being a concern.
0: And you can see, in a way, both of those... Um, tied to lockdown everybody inside couldn't go anywhere people trying to do the the teaching thing at the same time yep um putting somebody in front of a screen you know as a sort of pressure valve as well as well as a mm-hmm. sort of quick solution when you're trying to get dinner on the table yep. that's it of the tantrums though is that because people were there more often were just seeing it or do you think that the pressure might have been driving it
1: the, sorry, the pressure for driving what? I missed that part the oh,
0: the Of the tantrums. Was it more that parents oh, right. were there to see it, or was it the pressure of the situation that was perhaps driving this behaviour in the young children yeah. and the teenagers?
1: I think it is the pressure of the situation. Like, it was no surprise to me, when you understand brain development, it's no surprise that toddlers and teenagers would be the ones who would have the biggest reaction to lockdown, because they're the two stages of your development when you're really in the emotional brain. On top of that emotional brain is the frontal cortex, the sort of logical brain that controls your emotions sees things from other people's point of view is all reasonable. That's not fully developed until sort of mid to late 20s. But when you're a toddler... You know, you're you're fully immersed in that feeling brain. It hasn't really come online yet. So toddlers have big emotions. We talk about tantruming twos. You have to help the toddler to calm down. And then again, in adolescence, I mean, the brain scan of a toddler is remarkably similar to the brain scan of a teenager in terms of all the activities happening in the emotional brain. And there's very few lights on in the logical brain. For the teenager, it's because that logical brain basically gets shut for renovations for three years, and that's what we call adolescence. So it goes through so much neural pruning and sort of um, neural growth that basically. The brain shuts it down to get all those, you know, to get the refit done. And so for three years, we see the teenager go backwards and all the things the frontal cortex does, like controlling emotion, understanding risk, understanding consequence. So, yeah, it's no surprise to me that toddlers and teenagers are having the biggest reaction because they've got the least access to this brain that helps to mitigate our emotions and control our reactions.
0: Were there any other experience of of children that differed over the different age groups for this lockdown time?
1: Yeah, well, they were reporting the same things, but they had, you know, just coming up in different percentage marks, you know, about how concerned they were. So like the screen time that we were talking about, that was mainly um, parents of teenagers that were really concerned about that. Um, another concern that come across was access to help if your child is showing, you know, signs of stress or the start of, well not the start of mental illness, but, you know, just um, anxiety and depression. Like we had the, the NIB parenting survey showed that 25% of parents don't feel like they know how to get help and how to access for that. I mean, I get that lots in my social media feedback that people write to me. It's a very much a theme that comes through, is if your child is showing the first signs of depression or anxiety, there's quite a lot of places you can get help. There's 0800 numbers, there's your GP. People feel confident about that first level. If your child is at the other end of the spectrum and they're, um, you know, they're actually showing sc- signs of bipolar, schizophrenia, there's also services that you can access. But if you're in that middle gap, Your child's been depressed and locked in his room for three months. You've tried all the initial strategies that the 0800 numbers told you, and now you're just getting a bit exhausted three months later. Um, There's a lot of parents that don't know what to do at that point. So that was especially coming through for teenagers, which, again, is not surprising. You know, we have the highest rate of suicide for teenagers in the developed world. We have skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression, and that was before covid
0: And presumably during COVID, people felt their options, if there were any out there, if they didn't know where to go in the first place during that time, they would have felt they were shut off even more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And isolation we talk about as being the mother of mental illness. You know, it's really the leading contributor.
0: Which is interesting because you would think with, with families that isolation wasn't something that came through or did it did it still feature with this lockdown and not being able to mix with others, even though the whole family might have been together?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's still, you're not completely isolated because you're not in solitary confinement by yourself, which is, you know, true isolation that'll really bring about mental illness. Um, but you are still isolated, especially if you're a teenager when your peer network is so much more important to you than your parents. Then I imagine lots of teenagers felt, you know, um, quite isolated and cut off.
0: And the other thing that uh, not being able to hang out with friends uh, was also the ability to get out and, and do something physical, you know, mm. which which, I know I used to feel it was like walking the dog. You just had to take your small children out for a walk or it just got dire. And, That's if, right. and, and teenagers, if they're not getting out and doing something, then there's just, you know, that sort of built up pent energy that just tends to suddenly go off.
1: Absolutely. And you've often got to help them to do that. I mean, that's another thing that come across in the NIB Parenting Survey is the lack of motivation of teenagers. And that, from the stuff that we just discussed, that that frontal cortex where motivation comes from is shut for renovations for three years, it's not surprising they lack motivation. So as parents, we have to encourage them. We have to ride that fine line between helping and supporting them to get up and do something without crossing the line to just be nagging them and on their case all the time. So it's more about setting it up to make it easy for the teenager to make a decision to go and do something.
0: And looking back to the survey a year ago, were there any things that were still common or, or had any, everything just dramatically changed?
1: Oh, there was already a concern about screen time. Because I think, you know, we're living in an age, every generation is concerned about the newest technology. My mother was deeply concerned about video games. Um, Her mother was deeply concerned about television. Her mother was deeply concerned about Elvis's pelvis, you know, rock and roll. Um, Every generation is concerned. So that was there already before the presentation, but uh, before COVID, that's just much stronger now.
0: How are the parents themselves feeling?
1: You get a mixed bag, you know, it really depends... um, You know, when you work around trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, it really depends on how many pressures that family were under beforehand. If the families were well down the resilient end, you've got a two-parent family, they've got um, surrounded by family networks, even if you're cut off from them for the lockdown period, but just living in the same community as your extended family, um, there isn't so much poverty issues, there's no abuse. If you're well down that resilient end and doing well, then you can handle COVID. And so a lot of families did handle it. A lot of families reported being stronger. Because of it. But if you were already a vulnerable family, I mean, I'm hearing on the news today how the domestic violence rates soared during COVID, and that's not in the NIB parenting survey because we're focusing on the parenting stuff, but that doesn't surprise me. Um, Because if you're a vulnerable family, then being in lockdown is like being put into a pressure cooker.
0: Given that the lockdown and this whole COVID-19 pandemic situation is so extraordinary, is there any sense that people feel a bit more able to ask for help because it's not like, oh, look, people cope, just get on with it. This is a time when everybody acknowledges it is extraordinary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think because it's not even just national, it's international. It's the whole globe. How many things have we had before where the whole world is so focused on that? So it is very validating, you know. To um, I think it's making a lot of people realise we need to actively learn some self-calming techniques. You know, the things that we used to think about you'd do if you had post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, now, actually, a lot of those would be good for us all to integrate. You know, if we... I think if um, everyone with anxiety and depression or suffering from that did um, two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the evening of controlled breathing, they would do a lot to relieve their anxiety and depression.
0: Uh, mm. are you seeing any sign that people are adopting? you know, these strategies to cope. These strategies. These strategies. Cope.
1: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I get a huge interest on social media and I do clips on, on YouTube, you know, showing people little ways of doing that and there's been huge interest in that. So just like you're saying, it seems to be more socially acceptable to go, oh, we all need some active mindfulness skills now. We all need to actively know how to calm down. I mean, I teach people that you've got four brains inside your head, and they work from the bottom to the top. Everyone wants to get up to brain number four, because that's the flash one. That's the one that controls your emotions. That's where happiness is. But you have to meet the needs of brains one, two, and three. That's survival, movement, and emotion. So I think that survival brain, that's the HPA axis in the body, the highway of stress. If that's activated, you're not going to have much access to brain number four. So that's that brain number one, we really have to focus on self-calm. That's that controlled breathing. If you're just breathing into the count of six and breathing out to the count of six and breathing into the count of six, you do that for two minutes, that has a huge impact on the physiology of stress in your body. It directly calms it down. Um, Like I say, if everyone did two minutes of that in the morning, two minutes of that in the afternoon, we'd all be a whole lot happier because it would calm the whole physiology of stress within your body. And then brain number two, the movement brain, that's where all that stuff with exercise comes in. There's just so many benefits from um, exercise, and it doesn't have to be a full-on hour and a half session at the gym. The literature talks now about the letterbox effect; just the process of getting up off the couch and walking to the letterbox to check the mail and coming back again releases, you know, endorphins and peptides into your system, which are enough to, you know, change your perspective and help to sort of keep depression at bay. Yes, I just—if you meet the needs of those two brains, you often have solved a whole lot of the problem. We can talk about strategies in the emotional brain and strategies in brain number four, but often if you meet the needs of the survival brain, brain one and two, by those things, some self-calming techniques, some regular exercise, that often will fix the problem up.
0: And for those family who say they've come out stronger, is this because they've had time to reflect on what's worked within their family and, and tried to reinforce that, do you think?
1: Yes, absolutely. And they've just had time for communication. You know we sort of tend to say quality rather than quantity but i don't think that really applies for families you actually need quantity in families you need to spend time you need to be around the dinner table communicating and communication is a skill you know you can get people that are really lame at it and people that are really good at it but it takes practice so everyone being on lockdown families um together working at a slower pace which is more conducive to communication then yeah hopefully families just learn to talk to each other and to listen a whole lot better
0: uh, you know, you've talked that quite a lot of the feedback was about screen time, but, you know, mm. I wonder whether some people and families, you know, you hear about people playing games or chatting or, you know, coming up with some particular project to do during this time. Yep. Was, was there a sense that they, there was a bonding across the whole family, they worked together, it wasn't just sitting at the dinner table, which is obviously a great thing, yep. but they actually managed to work as a unit
1: Yes, absolutely. It's like a shared trauma. You know, you're all in this together. You've all got your own responses to it, but it's something you're all experiencing together. So that does you know, give you a sense of um, cohesion and a bond with the family.
0: And for those families that were probably doing it a bit tough to begin with and have been, it's just become even more awful for them, mm-hmm. is there any sense that, there is, that there's help out there for them and that people are trying to do something?
1: I think there probably is more than there was before. Because of, like you've already said, because this is a universal experience that everyone's going through, there is more consciousness around how we need to look after ourselves with mindfulness and things. So, yeah, I think the environment is probably better for that than it was before. It's still not perfect, but better.
0: Any good news? Um, yeah, the
1: good news is, um, well, like I said at the start, the fact that people are spending more time with their children, that's wonderful news. That's exactly what we need. That's the fabric of society. It's the basis of everything we do, really. A lot of what we do is for our children and our children's children. So rather than um, going to work to achieve that, actually investing in the children, spending more time with our kids, being stronger as families, makes us stronger as a nation.
0: And you're optimistic that this will stick?
1: It will, um... You know, I always see it very clearly that for the really vulnerable families, there's going to be ongoing problems. But for most of the families, they come out on the good side of this, they got through it, they're stronger as a a result of it, so we call that tolerable stress. It's stressful, but it's tolerable because you come together and you got through it. Toxic stress is what damages you. Tolerable stress makes you stronger, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, all right. Fingers crossed that it does stick indeed. Thank you so much for your time this morning. That was founder of Brain Researcher and founder of X Factor Education, Nathan Wallace.